This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Territory Story Podcast. I'm Leon Logan-Nathan and with me, my co-host from all the way in sunny and wintry Melbourne, Hi there, how are you? Welcome. Good, good. good. Was it sunny and 14 today? Yeah, it was sunny, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And for a brief moment in time, I wasn't freezing. When when the sun's coming through the the window for a moment, it's actually quite nice. Right. right. The reality hits me that 14 is going to be the top of the day. Never mind, mate. Never mind. It could be worse. He could be in Mogadishu or, uh, you know. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Or Helmand province. Yes, exactly. Well, mate, um, we've got a really interesting guest on the podcast tonight. I, I've never met him. I reached out to him um, through one of our contacts um, because you know, in our quest to speak to people from all sides of politics, um, the closest that I could get to a Labour person is a former Labour person. So <laughs> I thought we'd, uh, we'd take that opportunity. And so I reached out to Scott McConnell, who uh, is, uh, was formerly with the ALP and now he's an independent. Uh, for one of uh, looking at the map here, mate, the, the seat of Stuart is just, it looks like it's about a, at least a quarter, if not a third, the size of the territory. It's massive. We'll get Scott to talk to us about um, how he covers that. Um, but what really interested me about Scott when I, when I rang him up to invite him onto the podcast was his, uh, his upbringing and his background. It was utterly fascinating. So I'm really looking forward to sharing that with mm. you and the rest of the, uh, rest of the crew or the audience, as we call them. So with that, Scott McConnell. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, hey, how's it going? Welcome, Scott. This is going to be fun. So, Scott, uh, can we start with where you were born? Yeah, look, I was born in Central Australia. I was born on a remote cattle station called Rilara. Rilara is now an Aboriginal community, uh, a big one in Wallapree country. So I was born um, in January in 1968. And I lived at Napaby, I lived at Rilara till about 1970 and then moved to Napaby. And I, I grew up mostly at Napaby Station. Just to give you an idea of where those places are, Rilara is about 300 kilometres northwest of Alice Springs on the edge of the Tenemai Desert. And Napaby is about 200 kilometres northwest of Alice Springs, a little bit closer, sort of off the edge of the desert and in the range country. So uh, I very much grew up with Aboriginal people. So Rolara is Walpuri people and I have Walpuri family, uh, but I was also brought up by Amadala people at, at Napaby, Laramba. Now, how did you end up being born in Mulara? Uh So my parents lived there. So uh, my mother is quite an interesting person, Sel- Thelma McConnell. Uh, she's not a classic uh, two-pound pom, but... Uh, she immigrated with her parents and younger brother from a place uh, about 120 miles north of London, a place called uh, Biggleswade in Bedfordshire. So uh, after the war in England, of course, there was very little work and uh, my grandfather was actually an aircraft design engineer. So there was no work for those sort of people after the war. Uh, so he was in a very difficult situation and uh, so they decided to immigrate to Australia in the mid-1950s 
uh, and they came to Australia with all sorts of promises were being made by the Australian government about all the work opportunities. And it didn't quite work out when they got here. They ended up living in, in a tent uh, on the beach near Sydney. Where? In Sydney, right. Wow. Yeah, so I don't know much about that story, but uh, I know that they found uh, it to be a very, very difficult time. And then uh, my, uh, so my mother would have been, I'm just, I'm guessing here, she would have been about 12 or 13 and her brother a couple of years younger than her. So they were living there finding it very, very difficult. And then they ended up uh, finally being offered a job. Uh, My grandfather was offered a job at the Moomba gas fields in South Australia. And so he moved to the Moomba gas fields and took the family to reside uh, somewhere on the York or Air Peninsula. I always forget where it was, but so they were living on the, uh, down there in South Australia and he was working away remotely on a oil and gas field. Right, and on your dad's side? Uh, yeah, look, my dad's side is interesting too, but I can tell that story much quicker because I know even less about it. Uh, talking a bit about, more about my mum's experience, um, what then happened to my, the, you know, these working remotely things are really stressful on families, as we can imagine. So um, unknown to my grandfather, my grandmother uh, started a relationship with someone else and uh, and then decided that she wanted to move uh, with that someone else and uh, emptied the joint bank account, uh, left the kids in the care of a third party and uh, and took off. So uh, mm. that th- these things must be really all very, you know, seminal in my mother's life because my mother must have been, by this time, 14 or 15, and her mother had abandoned her and her brother in a hostel and taken off with a very much younger man um, and taken all the money out of the joint bank account as well. So it gets worse. So uh, Telegram gets to the, uh, to the Moomba gas field and uh, as uh, my grandfather has been uh, driven to the airstrip to fly down to uh, the York or Air Peninsula to deal with this matter, uh, the fellow is not a very good driver and he rolls the vehicle over and... Uh, seriously injures my grandfather. So my mother spent quite some time uh, in the early 1960s looking like, you know, she would become a ward of the state. Uh, somehow they managed to pull that together uh, and she didn't. And she decided uh, that she wanted to come to the Northern Territory. She, My mother was always a really avid, avid uh, pen pal, you know, letter writer. And uh, she had had some letter-writing people in the Northern Territory and she really wanted to come to the Northern Territory. So she came to the Northern Territory as a a tutor uh, for a station known as children. That's how she ended up at Tararara. At what age? Uh, I guess she would have been, uh, by that time, probably 17 or 18. Mm -hmm. So uh, by this time we're talking, yeah, the early 1960s. Mm-hmm. And, so and she my was a father, tutor. Mm-hmm. yeah, she was a tutor or governess, as mm-hmm. we like to call them here. So um, she turned up to uh, to teach the uh, the children of the station family, the Parkinson family, who are still a well known family around Central Australia. And uh, yeah, there she met my father. My father had been uh, at the station for some time. Um, my father was uh, quite a few years older than my mother. And he'd been at the station for a number of years. And 
yeah, they they met obviously and 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 later got married. How he got there is a little bit of a mystery. He appears to have run away from home when he was quite young, uh, about eleven. I know very little about his family. I did meet his mother very briefly once, and uh, but I I know very little about his family. My father's been dead for a number of years now. He was never a very talkative guy about this sort of stuff. Uh, so I'm not really sure what brought him to Rolara, but he was an incredibly skilled man. My my father, um, you know, I, I like to talk a lot and probably know a little. My father was the other way around. He talked very little but knew a lot. I could sometimes uh, see my father do something in electrical engineering or, or, or something mechanical that I'd never seen him do, that he did perfectly. You know, when he was in his 60s, he would be doing something that I'd never seen him done. And, oh, you know, I did that once. That was <laughs> incredible, an incredibly knowledgeable man. Gee. And so uh, they met at, uh, at this particular... Willara. Willara, yes. Willara, uh, yep. Yeah, they met there and decided to... Uh, did they get married or did they just live together? How did that... Uh, yes, they, yes, they, yes, they did get married, um, and so they would have got married uh, in about 1964. Right. So they got married in 1964, and they were married until the death of my father um, a few years ago. And you came along in 1968. Yeah, I've got, I, he's also passed away. I had a uh, an older brother. Uh, who was born um, in uh, around that time, late 65. Um, so, yeah, and I've also got a older sister who is Aboriginal. So my uh, father had already had a relationship with uh, my older sister, Mugi, Mugi Patu, uh, Mugi McConnell. Um, so... Uh, that's another interesting story too. So, uh, like lots of uh, like lots of uh, people my generation from Central Australia, uh, I have uh, Aboriginal relations as well. I still have contact with Mugi. Mugi lives in Darwin, and uh, I'd like to spend more time with her. But I've spent uh, a fair bit of time with her since getting to know her in 1994. I didn't even know she existed until 1994. Gee. she was born when after 65 or before. No, before 65. Right, so right. she is, I better not say how old she was. She might listen to the podcast. <laughs> so no, she, she's older. So, uh, so my, my father had had a relationship with, uh, with Moogie's mother yes. and, and then had Moogie. And of course, these relationships at the time uh, were frowned upon and in some cases indeed even illegal. Right. So, um, you know, it's sort of, it, there's many of these stories. There's, you could do a whole series of podcasts on these stories. <laughs> so uh, there is, you know, many, many. And uh, so my, uh, you know, uh, Moggy always knew, she was actually named Glenis by my father and that was his sister's uh, name as well. Uh, but Moggy got to be known by the nickname of Moogie and ended up changing her official name to Moogie. Uh, but, uh, yeah, um, I, uh, again, a, a very interesting story. Uh, Moogie was uh, living in Alice Springs at the time in the mid-1990s uh, and she was celebrating a significant birthday and something was written about it in the, in the paper. Uh, the Advocate, when we still had a paper, 
And uh, so I, um, being the sort of outgoing sort of person I was, I saw uh, Moogie's name, I saw her surname, uh, uh, maiden name of McConnell. I immediately knew, even though I didn't know anything about her and she had never been mentioned to me, she was one of those secrets that families keep, I immediately knew who she was when I saw uh, her uh, name in the paper. And then when I went to meet her very shortly after I rang her up. It's obviously a little bit before uh, mobile phone time. So I rang her up, got hold of her, went down the street to have a coffee with her. I immediately had a connection with her. It was quite amazing. Wow. And uh, what about education, Scott? I've got some insight into this. but So when you came along, um, tell us about your formative years. Look, um, education might take long. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, I only got a year six education. So, um, so I, living at, uh, at, at Napperby and Laramba, again, it's a cattle station. It's still a cattle station, but there's a large Aboriginal community there. It's about 200-odd people now, and it was about 120 then. So there was a school there. Um, I went to uh, the community school at Napperby for a very short time. Most of the time I was at Napperby, I did School of the Air. So I did about three years of School of the Air and I did about two and a half to three years at the Yuendamu School. Uh, the reason I went to the Yuendamu School is we lived at Yuendamu for a short period of time uh, from 1976 till about 1979 maybe. So we were over at Yuendamu for a period of time. We worked uh, on the cattle station. We never owned it. We worked on the cattle station. It belonged to a famous pastoral family from Central Australia, the Chisholms. And uh, the pastoral industry was doing really hard in the mid-70s. Uh, so we moved to work uh, at Yuendamu, which is another Aboriginal community, uh, just uh, you know, about 100 kilometres away. We lived there for a couple of years. So I went to the school there, and uh, I enjoyed going to the school there, and I'm still, uh, yeah, I'm still uh, well-known uh, at UNMU from my years in the school. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why when I ran politics, uh, you know, everybody in UNMU already knew me. I went mm. to school there, so I'm claimed as Wadapri. That's it. And, and presumably... If you've ever lived in UNMU, you're... I'm sorry? No, no, keep going. If you've ever lived, lived in UNMU, uh, you're always claimed permanently by the Wadapri, even though I've got connections to other language groups as well, but you're claimed permanently by the Wadapri and you're also have to support Collingwood. <laughs> oh, gee, um, that, that was, you, you mentioned language groups there. Presumably uh, you, you can speak um, some Indigenous languages? Yeah, look, I can. Uh, I'm not proficient in anything, but my understanding is fairly good. So when I was a child growing up at Nathaby, uh I could speak uh, the local language better than I could speak English. But again, just like the you know other things of the time, I was actively discouraged by my parents from speaking mm. uh, the local language. Right, that's interesting. But I was very good at it, and I'm still and I'm still quite good at it. If I spend a bit of time with people, you know, my comprehension goes up uh, very very quickly. Mm. So uh, you know, I've been exposed to lots of Central Australian languages, Pintibi literature from the west uh, to the west of Alice Springs. Uh, Pingaba to the southwest of Alice Springs, and then of course Amadala and Walpuri and all those languages that that I grew up with. So uh, I think we live in an incredible place where 
you know, you can look at a a language map of the Northern Territory and there is not a corner of the Northern Territory that the first language isn't still spoken today. We have the strongest first languages in the world and I think we should be much more proud of it than we are. Uh, Are there any similarities with with the various languages? Look, there, there is some, but, uh, you know, there's languages that are dramatically different as well. Like uh, Central Islander is, uh, is very, very hard. That's the language of Alice Springs. That's a very hard language for people that are Walpuri or Amadjara to understand. But Walpuri and Amadjara people can understand one another. Pindabi Lurichur people can understand one another. They can understand Pindjara a little bit and Yagaljara and that other group of languages. So, um, so yeah, look, there is some. And then, of course, all these languages are changing now and there is a, there's a, uh, there's a, a pidgin first language, you know, that uses some Walpuri words and some Pidyata words and, you know, it'll use, um, and it'll use some of the, uh, the structure of the language from a different language and so on. So uh, it's, it's quite interesting to see how, how languages morph and change. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is really fascinating. Uh, we haven't really had someone on the podcast that actually has gone into this level of detail about Aboriginal language. Uh, can I, I just want to ask you a simple question. Kangaroo. Is there... Uh, sorry? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah the, the number of... There's so many words for kangaroo. Why is uh, that? Again, with, uh, well because there's so many languages, you know, I mean, in yeah. Alice, Spring, Alice Springs, uh, you can you can judge it different ways, but Alice Springs, around Alice Springs, uh, that is serviced, you know, the community that is serviced by Alice Springs, there's 14 languages. So the most, uh, the most commonly word used for, for, word used for kangaroo in Central Australia is mullow. Mullow, right. Mullow. Mullow, yep. right. Mullow, oh. yep. Like okay. the U. That's what I was thinking. Is that where they got the name yeah. from? Is that is that right? <laughs> Could be. Gosh. <laughs> right. But I used to what? drive one once upon a time. <laughs> <laughs> You're such a bogan, aren't you? <laughs> so, so what about in Walpuri? What's the word kangaroo? Uh, oh, for Walpuri, oh, look, it's, uh, I'm... Uh, I'm forgetting right now. Uh, oh, I should know. No, I can't. I can't remember. Right. Uh, again, I'm much better when I'm around speakers. You know, yeah. it's like one of those. It's one of those things. <laughs> but can you just maybe? I mean, the language, the language that you're most familiar with, the Aboriginal language that you're most familiar with, when you translate it in, into English, is is the is it grammatically extremely different? I mean, how? How hard is it to translate English into? I think probably the hard. I think probably one of the hardest languages in Central Australia uh, would would be Aranda. Uh, Aranda is very very different. Uh, Pindabi literature uh, are pretty easy. Walpuri is probably a little bit harder. Uh, but um, yeah, it's one of those things. Um, I've got some really strange views. Not they're not strange views. Very uh, some very different views here. I'm always i'm always concerned about outsiders becoming you know uh too much uh feeling that they're experts in people's languages i think that people's languages are very sacred i think languages are like religions 
And I think you have to be of that language to really be fully proficient in that language. I'm obviously very respectful of people that are multilingual and so on. But I think language, especially in an Indigenous perspective, is culture. So I'm very careful about language. I, I get uh, I get very uh, very worried about uh, people uh, using a knowledge of uh, cultures language to to disassemble that culture, if you will. Mm. Mm-hmm. I, I guess. Uh, I mean, I'm not trying to disassemble the culture, or at least not knowingly. It's more curiosity, and the curiosity comes oh, from no, the no, fact no, you know, that's, that you know there's so little taught about this stuff, Scott. You know? Oh, look, it's 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 extraordinary how little how little is taught taught about it, and you know, it's interesting. So, no, I'm talking about in a, a wider perspective, you know, around around the language thing, right? So, look, I think that. You know, here's one that we get here all the time in the Northern Territory, you know, uh, about teaching language in schools. Now, uh, there's, to me, uh, some real issues here. So uh, the real issues are that uh, we know that the best way for people, uh, for students to take up new information and knowledge is to be taught in their first language. So when you get sometimes this sort of, you know, it's occasionally a far right-wing agenda, you know, people need to learn English. You know, it's English is the, the language of commerce and we're in Australia, we speak English in Australia. Uh, you know, we all heard these stories, right? Now, I do believe that you, you to participate in the economy, you do need to speak English. It does help a lot. Uh, but when we're learning, there's absolutely no reason why people can't be learning in their first language. If we're in Pintabi literature country, if the school want to do all their schooling in Pintabi literature, let them do it. So long as the kids go to school, so long as the school attendance is at a high rate and the learning uh, comprehension and retention is high, if people want to learn in their first language, let them learn in their first language. We know that if you learn in your first language, it makes it much easier to take up knowledge in other languages as well. English is here. It's around every day. People will end up taking up English. So I think be respectful to communities. Let them teach their students uh, in their schools in whatever language they want to. Mm. Is that is that happening? Uh, look, I think it's a problem. You know, there's been there's been. Uh, you know, I remember one time there was a big time political yikers between Labor and we in power before under Claire Martin and uh, and Paul Henderson. Uh, there was a big yike about you know English only being taught in the morning or whatever. Uh, I just think that those sorts of arguments are quite ludicrous. What I'm really worried about for schools in remote areas in the Northern Territory at the moment, including the electorate that I represent is I'm really worried about school attendance. School attendance is terrible. And uh, I don't think, I'm not into, I'm not into what, you know, oh, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's a white construct to go to school or whatever. That's all rubbish. We're, we're signatories to the international right of the child. Uh, the international right of the child, I think it might be Charter 3 or something like that, is that all children go to school between 5 and 15. Children should be going to school. Now, one of the best ways to protect Indigenous law, language and culture is to go to school. Kids that are not going to school, that don't have proficiency in English to be able to 
have a job or or know whether their art dealer is treating them properly or know how to engage in the wider community, they are going to find it very difficult to have time in their day to continue to practice their complex law, language and culture. So we need to work on school attendance. A lot of the problems that are, that are becoming more and more prevalent uh, in the Northern Territory are directly linked back in a cause and effect way to poor school attendance. Mm. We, and we so, have to work on it. Right. But we have to work on it. So on the subject of poor school attendance, when you were growing up, uh, you, you said you left school at grade six. Uh, what was the reason for that? Uh, I was too strong-willed and no one could get me to go to school. <laughs> no, no, uh, my parents, oh, look, I dearly love my parents uh, and I respect them immensely, uh, but they didn't care about me going to school. We need to have parents care about you going to school. But and you, we've got, you know, that's another, so I'll answer this, the question specifically about me first, but I think mm-hmm. it's an interesting uh, sort of link into talking about the wider issue. Yes. So when I, when I went to school at, uh, at, you know, at Navabee and at Yerndamu, uh my parents just had little to no interest in my education. Uh, I, I lived at home, I got fed, uh, you know, uh, the right number of meals, I always had clothes to wear, uh, I probably wasn't, you know, very socially and emotionally uh, very well catered for, but, you know, I, w- I was doing okay. But one of the things that my parents just didn't give a damn about was whether I attended school. And it was, as a result, uh, I didn't much. Mm-hmm. The school attendance at, at Napperby when I was a kid was, amongst the Indigenous students, was 100%. What? So in in wow. the early ni- in the early to mid nineteen seventies, the school attendance at Nappanby was a hundred percent. Why? Probably one of the worst waggers was me. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, surprising. Um, I wouldn't have thought that. Yeah. So look, I think that uh, it, it's really really interesting because I think that the the, the generation of parents then uh, they knew the world was a changing place. Uh, they knew that their uh, that their kids were going to live in a very different world than they did, and that they knew that the way to uh, ensure that their children were you know were resilient and capable in that future was for them to understand this new world that was clearly on their doorstep. And one of the best ways to understand that new world was to go to school. So there was a priority. You might have people that were completely. Uh, in a Western sense, um, uh, illiterate and enumerate, uh, but they knew that their children need to learn. This is a case in lots of uh, first world countries too, isn't it? So uh, parents knowing that their children need to have an education. And for some reason, we have lost that uh, between the 1970s and now, and we need to find out why we've lost it and fix it. Well, can you please drill down on that immediately? Why do you think that happened? Uh, welfare mendicancy. We've got, uh, we live uh, in a place where the economy of the Northern Territory uh, is Indigenous disadvantage. So uh, this might sound sort of deep and conspiratorial, uh, but I was explaining this to, I, I, you know, I grew up with lots of different people, you know, station people and community people and, uh, and, you know, I was talking to a number of station people that I grew up with uh, just a few days ago. 
and you know their opinion of the world by station people. I mean, cattle station people who tend to be quite conservative in their in their you know political views. Um, and you know they're they're conservative people, and I respect conservative worldview. I don't necessarily hold a lot of their views, but I understand them because I grew up in them to some degree. So we're talking about these things, and they've got this idea that they're doing it hard. You know, they're people that drive trucks and own stations, and you know they're doing it hard in COVID, and they're doing it hard in the way the economy is going. They're doing it hard because of the drought. You know, the flooding rains and all the problems we have here in Australia. You know. Uh, so they're having a difficult time. And they're saying to me that they kind of think that, that you know, Aboriginal people are out there having this whale of a time on communities that are well-serviced and all these great things happening. And I'm explaining to them that, no, it's actually not like that. The people that are doing well out of the system in the Northern Territory are in Darwin. Mm. Uh, they're in those buildings on Mitchell Street. Uh, they're in those buildings on the Esplanade. They're in that big building that I work in, Sickness Country, the Parliament House of the Northern Territory. They're the people that are doing well, the people on the fifth floor, the people that are down having a beer in the deck bar, and sometimes they have even a little bit more than a beer in the deck bar. <laughs> so, you know, they get a few other things in the deck bar as well. I've seen it happen. So those are the people that are doing well. So I was sort of explaining... The, the way that you, that you do, I'm saying in the Northern Territory, the government gets more money if less Aboriginal students go to school. The government gets more money if more Aboriginal people go to jail. The government gets more money if more Aboriginal people go on dialysis. You know, there's starting to be a theme here, isn't there? There is. You know, Alice Springs, uh, uh, Alice Springs is a, uh, a small regional city of about 30,000 people. Normally, you have about one police officer per thousand people. In Alice Springs, there is conservatively 250 police. There should be 30. And we're still screaming for more. We've got police guarding bottle shops. You know, you, you tell people, I tell people, my wife is from America, and I tell people in the US that we have sworn police officers wearing a taser, a Glock, and all of the other equipment of uh, accoutrements, as the police call them, uh, wearing all of that sort of regalia, standing out the front of a bottle shop. We're actually guarding bottle shops with sworn police officers. Isn't that extraordinary? We live in a place that this is happening today, right now. If it's still before 9 o'clock, we can go out to a... Uh, a takeaway liquor outlet in Alice Springs and we will find sworn police officers wearing firearms guarding the liquor cabinets. Why do we have to have that, Scott? We have to have that because we have built, we've built this economy that doesn't work. We've built this environment where school attendance has gone from 100% to less than 50%. We've built this environment where there was more Indigenous people working on a cattle station like Napperby when I was a child than there is now. We know what we need to do in the Northern Territory. The Northern Territory needs a diversified economy and a participatory economy. Unless we work on ways to get Indigenous land and labour in the participatory economy in the Northern Territory, we are in for a very rough ride. We've got to stop behaving like a frontier. We've got to stop building 
$12 million grandstands at the race course in the chief minister's electorate. And we've got to recognise that we've got a problem. And the fact that we've got a problem, that we've got so many people in our community. And remember, Indigenous population of the Northern Territory is about 30% uh, across the board. And in places like Alice Springs, it's probably more like closer to 40 to 50%. So the reason why we are guarding bottle shops with sworn police officers is because we've got so many people that are disengaged from a participatory economy. How do we fix that? That's what we need to fix. It's not about a ship lift. It's not about a grandstand at the race club. It's not about whether there's an RSL built uh, on the Darwin foreshore or not. We need to get on to the fact that governments need to govern for all Territorians at all times. And what's happening in regional and remote Northern Territory is not acceptable. And it's not acceptable whether you're Indigenous or non-Indigenous. It's not acceptable. So without asking you to speak ill of those that can't respond, I mean, you're the third person we've spoken to in a week who's essentially said the same thing. Um, Are the major parties going to eventually figure it out and get on to the right business? Uh, look, I don't think they are because I think that, uh, you know, I'll, uh, I'll quote from a, 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 a song. It's a line out of a song from the, uh, the, the rapper, the uh, notorious B.I.G. <laughs> uh, the notorious B.I.G. Uh, did a rap song and, uh, and I think it's called The Ten Commandments of Crack. <laughs> and uh, I think the sixth commandment of crack is don't get high in your own supply. Well, they do. <laughs> They're getting yeah. high on their own supply all the time. They believe their own rhetoric. Those people on that coterie of people that work on the fifth floor that are all, you know, they're, they're, they drink in the same bars, they uh, buy property in the same suburbs, their children go to the same schools. And uh, they've got a, a, a really weird view of the world. They think that the world centres around Darwin. It doesn't. Darwin is nearly, merely the service hub for the Northern Territory. So most of those people that are making these decisions, uh, that are you know, deciding who's going to govern the Territory next, who's going to have a turn you know, driving around in the white cars, uh, they're the cars that ministers drive around in, uh, while they're all busy deciding that they're not really focused on the school attendance in these remote communities or the workforce utilisation or the fact that it's just uh, inherent and, you know, it's inherently wrong to be guarding bottle shops with sworn police officers. They're not focused on those things. They're focused on themselves. They're focused on who's going to be on level four or level five. Uh, that's what they're focused on. So I have no confidence in the system, the way it's working at the moment. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why uh, I uh, drafted letters patent for a Royal Commission into the Government of the Northern Territory. I wasn't aware of that. Scott, let's, let, let's, um, let's pedal back a little bit because we, we, we want to come back and definitely talk about this more. But you, you mentioned an American wife. Um, uh, I want to make the connection between your leaving school or getting a grade six education and then ending up uh, with an American wife. How did that end? Can you plug that gap for us? <laughs> oh, okay. So, that, that's, that's, so that's quite an interesting one too. So, I, um, so the reason I left school at year six is, you know, I really needed to supplement my parents' income. So uh, I started working uh, and, you know, working a little bit on the side at first and then working more and more. 
So, uh, you know, I ended up working, uh, you know, building cattle yards and, you know, all sorts of other things that you do on stations. Uh, and uh, we moved from Napperby in 1984, 1983. And we went and built a really big drafting yard. That's just a, a, you know, a really big yard that you use to, you know, organise cattle into different groups uh, and then truck them out. So we built this yard. Uh, in the middle of the Tenamai Desert on a, uh, a, a cattle station that at the time was called Mungal Downs. Uh, but it was absolute, it's an absolutely beautiful place. It's in my electorate that I represent. And uh, so I lived there, you know, with my family uh, for six months building this big cattle yard. I realised by this time, I was 15, I realised by this time that my parents, as nicer people as they were in lots of ways, uh, just couldn't organize their lives properly so i just sort of said that you know we need to be thinking about the fact we can't be you know living you know out bush in a tent and living on cattle stations and not having a plan what's going to be the plan so uh i sort of started influencing my parents quite a lot at that time we moved to alice springs uh and uh it was very very difficult for my family who are very insular station people not very communicative didn't really understand the alice springs environment very much um and it was very difficult for them they wouldn't make the decisions they needed to make uh so i found myself making a lot of these decisions my brother i don't want to still speak ill of him but he wasn't much more capable than my parents so I seemed to be the only one that had any ability to make any decisions. So I ended up buying my parents a house to live in uh, when I was 18. So I had a mortgage for a, a house when I was 18 and I rented it to my parents. Uh, but I didn't want to live there. So uh, I started working in Alice Springs at uh, various jobs. I did a bit of car detailing when I was 14 or 15. I actually shoveled goat shit for a – there was a – a, uh, a goat milking herd in Alice Springs that people don't really know about that belong to a family called the Kramers. I worked for them for a short time. But then I got my dream job, which was working for the Conservation Commission, which was uh, I've always been interested in the natural environment. Uh, the Conservation Commission was, uh, you know, parks and wildlife. Uh, and so I started working for the Conservation Commission when I was uh, probably about 16. And uh, then very shortly after that, I became a ranger. Uh, I was a park ranger in the Northern Territory for nearly 10 years, from late 1985 till 1995. So uh, that's what I did. I, I, uh, I thought that I would be a ranger all my life. I worked on remote uh, uh, parks around Central Australia, places like uh, Fink Gorge National Park and Altunga Historical Reserve the Telegraph Station, and Ormiston Gorge. I worked at places like that, um, did a lot of uh, tour guiding and, uh, you know, all the things that rangers did in them days. You know, we fixed tenses and wrote interpretive material and did slideshows and for visitors and cleaned toilets and did all that sort of stuff. So I enjoyed well, Hang on, I just I need to ask you, I need to ask you some very important, I need to ask you some very important questions about that. <laughs> so as a ranger, did you, did, we, did you have to double as a snake handler? <laughs> yeah 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 look i've done i've done uh, i've done a fair bit of uh, snake handling and some of it was more successful than others uh, <laughs> a, a little uh, a little a little story there was uh, i uh, i was did a call out to uh, a remote campsite to uh, to collect a snake from a uh, 
from a, a campground of a school group and uh, I wasn't very old. I was probably 17 or 18 and uh, I, was, I, was, uh, I was quite enamoured with one of the very young school teachers. So uh, I, hang around, <laughs> I hung around at the campsite for a little bit too long and then went to the neighbouring Glen Helen uh, 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 Lodge and had a couple of beers and uh, then... Uh, and then realised that I should be getting going home, and uh, went to get going home, and uh, I collected the uh, the Western Brown snake, Oops. and uh, I put it in a bag, and I still had the bag, but not the snake. Uh-oh. And uh, <laughs> the bag was sitting on the floor of the vehicle. So oh, I then no. had a vehicle with a Western Brown snake in it oh, that no. I needed to drive home. <laughs> oh man! But anyway, that's, that's, that's an interesting. Story. But, but look, no, hold up, hold up, hold up. Yeah. The Western brown snake, uh, for because uh, we have a lot of uh, listeners that are actually outside of Australia, and they are completely fascinated with Australia, right? Uh, and uh, although my knowledge of snakes isn't that fantastic, I know the Western brown snake is definitely in the top five of most poisonous snakes in the world, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, it, that's right. Yeah, it is more poisonous than the king brown, if I'm not wrong, or is it the eastern? Oh, brown? It depends. It depends on the circumstances. Uh, uh, they're probably about the same. Uh, right. But I can tell you another. I can tell you another Western Brown story. Uh, in 1979, uh, I was bitten by a Western Brown. Oh my God! Cheapest. So I was, I was 11. I was 11. Yeah. So we'd been out, uh, we'd, it's the cattle station, uh, we'd been out and uh, we'd got fresh meat. It's referred to as getting a killer. So we'd gone out, we'd picked out a, you know, a neighbour's uh, beast. This is the normal way you do business here, you know. You uh, don't kill one of your own, you tend to kill one of the neighbours that might have uh, uh, <laughs> you know, ventured onto your land. <laughs> and, uh, cattle rustling. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, some might call it that. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we got a killer and, uh, and you know, we'd, we'd cut it up out bush and we'd brought it in and we'd hung it in the meat house and you, you tend to hang the meat, you know, and, and the way we did it there is we quartered it up and uh, so we'd, you know, we'd take the hide off and, and you know, everything else and just bring in the quarters of the, of the beast and hang them in the cool room and then often the thing you would do is have rib bones on the first night. So... We were, we'd done that and we were out uh, eating some fresh rib bones, uh, you know, cooked on the fire um, on the lawn next to the, next to the house. And uh, I was uh, lying down on the lawn playing with a dog we had actually. And uh, I noticed this weird, uh, weird, weird prick on the, uh, the back of my hand. And, uh, and then again, and, uh, and I looked at the back of my hand, the webbing on my left hand, and I'd just been bitten twice by a reasonable sized Western Brown, which I could see in the grass so um i I was 11 years old and uh there was um uh, where i was there was about uh, 15 steps from the lawn to the house but i think i cleared it in like one or two (laughs) and you know informed my mum that i'd been bitten by a snake and um how did you know it was a western brown i i I know snakes well i knew it was a western brown immediately there's a lot of variation in western browns um but uh uh, yeah, it was a variegated western brown, meaning it had rings, and uh, there's no other snake that looks like it. So I knew that's what it was, and I knew I was in a bit of an issue. It was night time; it was probably about eight o'clock at night. 
Uh, Napa Bay is 220 kilometres from Alice Springs. It's mostly a dirt road. And uh, there was no telephone. It was only uh, radio telephone. So, uh, mm. so no actual direct dial phone at all. So uh, I knew I was in a little bit of issue, an issue, but uh, it all went well. We went to town. Uh, we were, I was picked up. There, there was, uh, you know, no, no being able to get the flying doctor. The airstrip wasn't lit or anything. So it was a road trip halfway to meet an ambulance uh, on the road. And I was in hospital for a few days. It's an incredible experience. Um, I uh, obviously was only 11 years old, so I'd never been, you know, high on anything else. Um, it uh, was an incredible experience. Um, it uh, it really, uh, I think it changed me quite a lot, actually. Um, I was lucky to survive it. That, that, that's the venom or the medication to... Oh, who, who knows? It was one yeah. or one or the other. Bit of yeah. both. And yeah. uh, a bit of, bit of both, probably. And uh, But, yeah, it was sort of, it was a surreal experience. You know, I can wow. still... You know, I can still remember really interesting and detailed things in the, in the ward. You know, a chip of a tile near the door. Um, <laughs> the way, um, yeah, the way a note hung on the on the back of the a coat hook on the back of the doorknob. The colour of the of the back of the door. I, I remember wow. these things like I like I'm seeing them right now. It imprinted on my mind. It was quite an incredible experience. Mm-hmm. And so why, why did it bite you? I mean, because they generally leave people alone, don't they? Oh, look, I think it was just an accident. I was, right. it, was tra- it was traversing the lawn. Um, uh, there was, uh, obviously, there was things happening that probably attracted uh, potential prey, um, right. you know, whether it was insects from the lights of, the, of, of where we were or whether, you know, maybe even stirring mice or other things that were interested in what we were cooking. Right. So I think I was just, I was just unlucky. Uh, the uh, we got the snake the the, the following day. Uh, I had the snake for a number of years in a jar. I don't actually know what ended up doing with it. I'm surprised he wasn't dinner. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so so after that experience as an 11 year old, you then allowed a Western Brown to get out of a bag in your car driving home. Well, how did that feel? I was very interested in a young woman that was a school teacher at the time, and I had more important things to worry about. <laughs> Mistakes happen. So you managed to get home with that. Did you find that snake in the end? I did. I said, actually, some people that were my supervisors at the time that are still around probably don't know this story. Uh, but luckily, I had days off because I spent the next. Uh, couple of days with the vehicle parked in the sun and one door open and I was watching hoping to see the snake move I think it was a day and a half later before I got it out of the vehicle wow so they're pretty patient creatures aren't they (laughs) (laughs) you'd have been nice and warm in there yeah you're right. And so, but uh, did you ever come across any any, I mean we know that the, uh, the the inaptly named fierce snake is the most poisonous snake in the world uh and that, that that's a that's a central taipan or something isn't it it's a it's a it's just it's a type of taipan yeah yeah uh, did you ever come across an, uh, one of those no uh, i've seen taipans in the barclay uh but uh yeah i haven't uh yeah i, I i've never handled a taipan I, I i'm a reasonably good snake handler but i wouldn't consider myself too flash <laughs> So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. not Steve Irwin. You take no. on a Western Brown, but no Taipan. <laughs> yeah. So uh, 
Yeah. Well, thank you for indulging us in that segue. I mean, I always find it fascinating, you know, talking to people that, you know, from Central Australia because you definitely come across these things. And for you guys, it's all very blasé. But for us living here in Darwin and the rest of the country and indeed the rest of the world, uh, this is very, very fascinating stuff. So, um, uh, so, so getting back to your story then, uh, you, you were a ranger. Uh, you, did, you did that for 10 years. And then, and then what did you do after that? You had enough? Uh, yeah, look, I, I just sort of, uh, I, I just decided that, uh, that, you know, I was only, uh, I was 25 or something like that or 26 and, you know, I'd, I'd never been to university. I had never done, you know, the gap year thing. You know, I'd never, uh, really traveled much overseas. I have been overseas, uh, on a trip earlier on. Uh, but you know, I just sort of felt like I really wanted to broaden my horizons, and uh, and I knew I wasn't going to do it as a full time public servant. The public service was changing in ways I didn't like, and it was becoming too bureaucratic. There was you know people sitting in air conditioned offices sending emails to one another, and uh, I thought there was things to be done outside, and uh, so I just decided one day, look, it's time to do something else, and uh, and I resigned and. Uh, and uh, I've always been quite a keen cyclist, despite being, you know, very uh, overweight for a lot of my adult life. I've always been a keen cyclist. Um, so uh, I, it just happened that uh, I came across a package cycling tour, which were, were in Central Australia. They were called Rock Tours. And uh, they were doing a package tour from Darwin through Kakadu across the Gibb River Road uh, to Broome. It sounded like the perfect sort of a thing to start my holiday with. And I booked in on that. We didn't ride all of it, um, but, you know, it's bikes on the roof of a four-wheel drive and, a, you know, a, a long-distance camping tour. And uh, so I did that trip. Uh, I drove from, from Alice Springs to Darwin and met the tour company in Darwin and we were picked up on uh, Mitchell Street, you know where that Chili's Backpackers is? Mm -hmm. On Mitchell mm -hmm. Street in Darwin? Yep. Uh, we were picked up there and, uh, yeah, the first person that I saw waiting for the bus was, uh, was Kathy, who's now my wife. So, uh -huh. um, yeah, so Kathy was uh, in Australia from Illinois, uh, Chicago, uh, she was uh, going to uh, the Illinois State University and she was doing a year study abroad. So she was studying in UWA in Western Australia and on her, you know, her university holidays, she was booked on the same tour. So that was 1995 and we did the backwards and forwards thing for a number of years and uh, she moved here permanently in late 2000. Right. Wow. To get away from Bush. <laughs> President Bush. <laughs> wow. We didn't know how much worse it was. Going to be. <laughs> I was going to say at that point the worst president in history, but he's been long surpassed since then. Yeah. And uh, okay. And so, how did you then end up meandering into politics? Uh, look, that goes back to um, back to the Napperby days. So um, I was always, even though an uneducated little kid, I was always a very interested little kid. I was always interested in 
what was going on in the outside world. Um, uh, very, very much so. So uh, a complex story to tell. I'll try and tell it uh, in a simpler way. But uh, so we're going back to times, you know, I, I might have only been, you know, six years old, for example, and I was spending lots of time with senior Aboriginal elders in the stock camp and in the garden. You know, we had a big vegetable garden and we had a milking cow and all those sorts of things. I spent lots of time. I loved it when people talked, whether speaking the local language or whether they were speaking in English. I loved it when people talked. I loved it when people from outside the community arrived and they were talking, especially if they were talking in a language I didn't understand, you know, like Truckee's language or, or an Aboriginal language I didn't understand. I was always fascinated by the outside world. I don't know why, but I, I was. Mm-hmm. So um, I heard a, a lot of interesting stories when I was very young and uh, that always interested me in what was going on. One of the really early political stories, um, have you noticed that the seat has been renamed? The seat that I represent? So uh, I currently represent the seat of Stuart. used to be up here. What was it before? Grey. No, no. It's, it's Stuart now. And, yes. and after the next election, it will be Gwaja. Right, right, right. Okay. So Gwaja is, uh, is a, a much more appropriate person to have the electorate named after. So let me go back to the story. So, you know, I'd be sitting around, uh, you know, we would often, uh, we would often be, you know, sitting around in a, a lean-to that we had next to the vegetable garden with a, an old senior man. I'm not going to mention his name because it's not respectful to mention his name at the moment. Um, but, you know, an old senior man that I spent lots and lots of time with and uh, we'd be sitting around and he would tell me a lot of these stories uh, from an Indigenous perspective uh, and a lot of times in language. And so I learned this story about this, this man uh, that survived a massacre. Hmm. And the massacre is known as the Coniston Massacre. Coniston is the next station to the north of Napabee and it's in Omojido country. Hmm. So I okay. learned about the Coniston Massacre from Indigenous people. I didn't learn it from Whitefella history books or watching a movie. I learned mm-hmm. about it from the campfire, sitting down, eating damper, you know, spreading IXL jam, uh, you know, on a piece of damper and hearing these stories and mostly in language and always from an Indigenous perspective. So I heard about this famous man that, was, that survived the Coniston Massacre and then uh, he became really well known. Why did he become really well known? Oh, he was on a stamp, a postage stamp. And I'm like, oh, this is a very interesting story. So tell me, tell me more, tell me more. And then uh, this old man telling me that, uh, you know, we need to remember people like that. We need to remember the Coniston Massacre. We need to remember what was done. We need to remember that we can't forgive one another unless we talk about these sorts of things. And uh, so I was very interested in that. There's lots of other massacre stories that I could tell you that are extremely interesting and, and horrifying that aren't even known to, to the history books. But this one is. Hmm. So um, you're talking a little bit more about it and talking about this man. So Gwaja, the man, he is a, a Walpri Amajara man. He, uh, he survived the Coniston Massacre, which was uh, in 1929, I think. I hope I'm right there. Uh, 1928 or 1929. Again, my my uh, dates is escaping me at the moment. So, um, so he survived that 
constant massacre. It affected people. Uh, and people interested in the podcast need to do their own reading on it. It's too complex for me to cover now. Um, but the um, uh, this man was a survivor. He went a long way away. They ran away from the retribution parties. There was retribution parties for a period of time. There was the Royal Commission about it. All sorts of things happened about it. This man ended up growing up in in different country, and uh, a photograph was taken of him that made him very famous. He was a very striking Walpri Amajado-looking man with a very li- big, long beard. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he was first on a, a famous magazine at the time called the Walkabout magazine, mm-hmm. which was, uh, you know, a, 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 a common interest magazine, a popular magazine in the 1950s. Uh, and then his likeness was later put on a postage stamp and he became quite famous and people were always chasing him around taking his photo because he was such a distinctive-looking man. No one knew that he was a survivor of the Constant Massacre. Mm-hmm. But this old man that I'm sitting down eating damper and IXL jam with, he knew and he was telling me. And he said that, my, that the electorate that I now represent, which was quite new at the time, we're talking about 1979 and we only had self-government in 1978, uh, so it was quite a new electorate. And he was saying that we shouldn't name that thing after some whitefellow explorer. We should name that thing after people like this, like the mm. survivor of the Coniston Massacre, like the Guaja. Mm. So it's pretty amazing now that uh, I've managed as the member for Stuart to, uh, to take a lead role in having the electorate renamed Guaja. That makes a link directly back to sitting around that campfire, mm. eating that damper and that IXL jam with that old man. Mm. So you're responsible for that? Yep. That's, so that's my political in, no, That's where my political interest um, sort of uh, starts from an Indigenous perspective and understanding about that sort of Indigenous worldview, uh, very, um, you know, from that early age. Uh, also, uh, there was always a lot to be interested in at Napabee. Uh, the owners of Napabee were very well connected. Uh, so we had a visit from the Governor-General uh, we also had a visit from the then Prime Minister, Malcolm Fraser, mm. Gee. who went for a ride on my bike, <laughs> <laughs> which was quite funny because it was a very small bike and, of course, he was a very big man. He was. Yeah. He was. So, yeah, so uh, interest in politics, I never thought um, I... I never thought that I would be in a position to seek an elected office, uh, but I was very, you know, interested in politics at that young age, and I had a very strong association with the then CLP member for Stuart, uh, which was a man called Roger Vale, and mm. uh, I, you know, I had a lot of time for Roger Vale, and uh, he uh, he was yeah a great influence on my life. He was the first person that. Uh, actually picked me up and brought me back from hospital after the snake bite incident. Oh. Right. How interesting. And so uh, this all transformed you over many years into uh, you know, wanting to become more uh, involved in politics today? Yeah, look, there's a lot of other steps that are complicated to talk about. Uh, I was very insular uh, and, uh, and I often like to refer to myself as quite demure. Uh, I didn't speak much until I was about 15 or 16 
uh, I had a, uh, I was a very insecure person. I still am quite an insecure person. Um, I uh, was always worried about uh, my weight. I was always worried about what I looked like. Remember, I'm a white kid amongst black kids. Mm. I didn't like being white. Interesting. Mm. I didn't like being blonde. I didn't like being the only blonde kid in the school photo. Uh, so uh, I was a very insecure person. Uh, I was uh, proficient in Indigenous law and culture and language uh, but was ridicule for being proficient in those things in some circles. So I was a very insecure guy. And uh, when I was about um, 16 probably, I just decided I had to stand up for myself. And I just decided that I absolutely had to speak out and had to be very different. I knew that if I didn't do that, I would end up in the same situation that my parents were where they were just not functioning in the wider world. So I just decided I'm going to do something different and I did and I've been rather, you know, outspoken and obtuse ever since. But it was light switch. Overnight, I just decided I had to approach life differently. So did, did it feel for a time, um, you know, almost like a, an out-of-body experience? Because it's quite difficult to change one's personality. Uh, look, um, yeah, look, it was, it, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was difficult and easy. I'm a light switch decision maker, you know, like I decided I didn't want to be a ranger anymore when I thought that was going to be the career for my rest of my life. I was very comfortable with the light switch decision. Uh, I just decided I had to do business differently. I just decided that, that I couldn't possibly internalize all these hopes and visions and ideas, uh, but not stand up for them. Mm. You know that's a road to that's a road to ruin. It's a road to to mental illness. Uh, it's you know it's you you can't have all these ideas and not have an ability to talk about them. Um, the only way you can make your life more frustrating is to have ideas and get into politics. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. so so you beca- you became the member for for Stuart only in the last no in two thousand and sixteen at yeah, the last election. What, yeah, what, what yep. did you do before that? So, uh, so I was a ranger for that 10 years mm. uh, and then I did, uh, I, uh, I, I travelled around for a little bit including going to the US uh, and living uh, at Cathy's University in, uh, in Illinois and uh, then I came back and I enrolled in Charles Darwin, it was the NT University then. Uh, in anthropology, and I started an anthropology class, uh, anthropology uh, major that I never finished. Um, I went back to the US. I studied for a year, then I went back to the US to spend time with Kathy in the southwest of the US, uh, in uh, a, a little place in eastern New Mexico. Uh, and uh, then I came back to study uh, at um, at NTU, but I just couldn't afford to keep studying. My parents by then were were quite old. My father was quite ill, and I was still, um, you know, helping them. They still lived in my house, uh, and I was still helping them. So uh, I basically had to help them financially. I couldn't possibly stay in university, so I didn't. So I still, um, yeah, I still have only the year six education. Hmm. But studying anthropology must have been interesting. Oh, it was. 
mm. it was. It was extremely interesting because, uh, you know, I was, uh, you know, I was studying anthropology with these people that were, you know, monocultural that had this sort of esoteric view of other people's cultures and <laughs> they just didn't have, they didn't have the experience I had. It was like, it was like, it was like, yeah, playing with kittens. They had no idea. It was quite interesting. I can just imagine it would have been fascinating being in a class with you. You would have been quietly sitting there thinking, these clowns have got no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, it was quite, and I always like new knowledge. So I'm always, yeah. uh, I find somebody that's, you know, uh, that's ill-informed but opinionated, I find their views just as valuable as people that are that know more. You, you need to know how people think. Yeah, you need yeah. to know what people are thinking and how they think about it. So I'm I'm willing to listen to people even if their ideas are rather kooky. Okay, so take us to take us to the to the election. I mean, how did you get involved in Labor? Were, were you a member of the Labor Party for a long time? How, how did you get pre-selected? No, not not at all. Um, so uh, look, that's that's interesting. I mean, again, I uh, I would say that my my politics is mainly progressive. Uh, but I'm a great believer in, you know, I think you have to have a participatory economy. Uh, I think you, you know, you have to make money to send it, spend it on social programs. So uh, I'm going to be like every politician and claim that I'm a social progressive and an economic conservative, uh, which is, you know, a load of rubbish as well. But I'm going to, you know, I claim that. Um, so, uh, look, uh, I never thought uh, that, you know, I would get into political office. I I was, I hung around Roger Vale a little bit later on um, when he was later the member for Brayling, Uh and, you know, thought that uh, I, you know, oh, gee, I'd love to, you know, I've got all these ideas, I've got all this experience, I would be a good politician. But I always still had that, um, uh, you know, that idea that I'm the underdog, that, you know, I'm not that popular, um, that inferiority complex, if you will. Mm. I never really gave it a, a serious consideration. Uh, then I ended up working uh, for Aboriginal corporations for a significant period of time, uh, including uh, remotely and in town. I started a commercial uh, together with the directors. I started a commercial company in Alice Springs called Ingerica Commercial. And uh, that was the idea that, uh, you know, we, we need commercial best practice. We need uh, commerciality in delivering Indigenous programs, um, you know, uh, on time, on budget, all those sorts of things, not grant-driven. And so I started that commercial company. I ran that for 10 years. Uh, for a short time, I was actually a member of the CLP. Mm. Wow. So That's very interesting. Good friend of Alice. Very good friend of Alison Anderson. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I was encouraged by Alison Anderson to uh, join the CLP, but uh, I I uh, I was willing to. The, at the time, uh, the leader of the CLP was Terry Mills. It was when Terry Mills yes. was the opposition leader. Yes. And uh, and I actually thought that Terry Mills was quite good. Mm. I uh, drove him out to another remote community once, Santa Teresa. And all we discussed on the trip out there, it's about an hour in and an hour out. And so for that two hours in the vehicle, we talked about uh, about uh, education, which mm. you can see I'm passionate about, Indigenous mm. education. And also we talked about 
concepts of uh, restorative justice. So I actually really enjoyed that conversation with Terry Mills. I, I've got to say, unfortunately for Terry, I'm not such a fan these days. Mm. Uh, but then uh, he, his influence and the influence of Alison mm. was enough for me to join the CLP. Mm. Uh, I was a member of the CLP for a very short period of time. Then Adam Giles became the leader. Mm. And although I speak to Adam Giles and have a personal relationship with Adam Giles, uh, I wasn't wanting to be part of his leadership style or part of a party he was leading. So uh, I left. And then we get back, you know, a few years later, of course, and, uh, you know, my politics is relatively well known. And uh, I think that the Territory is in a very difficult space, economically, socially. I think I've got a lot of experience. I think that I should have a go at politics. Uh, I decide to have a go. I look at Labor's platform at the time. Uh, I've you know, been a member of a union for some period of time. Uh, I know lots of Labor people. I decide to seek Labor pre-selection and I seek Labor pre-selection. I don't think they took me very seriously as a candidate. Uh, but as you know, uh, my electoral result uh, showed that I was a serious candidate. Okay, but, but let's just, you, you just glossed over some pretty important stuff there, Scott. Uh, and I like to drill down a little bit in this, uh, please indulge me. Did, did Labor have any issues with you previously being in the CLP? Was that a problem? No, not really. We discussed that. And, yeah. uh, you know, and I, I basically probably pitched a very similar line that I actually had some time to what the Terry Mills of the time was saying. Right. Uh, I am interested in things like restorative justice and a functioning school system. Right. Uh, so, uh, so, yeah, I, they seem to be comfortable with that. And, uh, and you know, I... Uh, Labor don't do a very good job of supporting the candidates at all, but I got as much support as any of the other candidates. And, uh, and yeah, then, uh, you know, I did the hard yards to, to win the seat. Uh, so, but, 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 yeah, but before you won the seat, you got pre-selected. Were, were there a lot of people putting their hand up to get pre-selected? Uh, look, there was a couple of other people, I think, that were interested uh, in pre-selection for the seat. But remember... I was running against a, uh, a sitting CLP member who was a minister, uh, Beth Price, yes. Indigenous, and yes. you know people thought that the people thought, oh, you know, she's going to retain the seat, and uh, so I don't know that there was really that much interest. Um, Carl Hampton considered pre uh, seeking pre-selection again, but I don't think he actually did. I don't know whether anyone else formally sought pre-selection, uh, but yeah, I ended up getting it. Because it's a pretty important seat. Because looking at the, uh, at the previous members for Stuart, there was Roger Vale, as you mentioned, uh, seventy four to eighty three. Then there was Brian Ede, who was in fact the leader leader of the of the Labor Party uh, for many many years. I remember him when yeah. I was when I first came up to Darwin. He was there from eighty three to ninety six. Uh, never won an election, of course. Uh, and then Peter Toyne who was part of the uh, Claire Martin victory in 2001. Yep. And, and if I'm not mistaken, he became a minister. He was a minister, he I did. think, for justice, yep. possibly. Yep. Um, and then Carl Hampton, who I don't really know very well at all. Carl was a minister as well. Right. And then Bess Price, who was in the newspapers for all the wrong reasons, it seems. I mean, that my, that was my, that's my perception. Uh, my Are you talking about the Waldorf salad at all? or? Could be, yeah, there was, there was that. Or the Waldorf Hotel. Oh, well, that might have been it. <laughs> yes, that's right. 
Um, and, and so you, a white guy in a predominantly indigenous uh, electorate uh, that looks about two-thirds or about a third the size of the territory, how the heck did you get out there and, like, what did you, did you drive all those distances? Yeah, during campaigning I did 66,000 kilometres. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> Over a period of how long? Uh, a bit more than six, bit more than six months. And, uh, and I campaigned in a very different, I've campaigned in a very different way. So, uh, I, you know, I'm not into the signs and the roadside waving and the, and the red shirts and the, all that sort of stuff. Uh, I believe politics is personal and you need to make those personal connections. So I would go and, I mean, this is the, the, the advantage of that history that I have. So I would go to larger Mano. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, um, in, in the middle of the electorate and a long way from our springs, uh, I'd go to Larger Mana and I'd be sitting out the front of the store. I'd already know people, people that already know who I was. And uh, But, you know, I would start conversations about when I was there in the 80s and I was actually sitting under trees that I'd planted when I worked for the Conservation Commission. Mm. So I could talk about those histories. I could talk about those people. I could talk about those connections. And, you know, being a politician, people want to know that you understand uh, your constituents' life and experience. So I was just demonstrating to people that I have lived in that environment. You know, I'm not interested in what my good friends on the fifth floor want. I'm interested in what you want. And uh, that's why people voted for me. Yes. So in some respects, you and... Uh, would this be a stretch? And I don't, you know, mean to uh, to, to, to insult you at all, but, but, but you and... Um Who's, who was the former leader of the opposition in uh, CLP, Leah Flockiero, and who was the other guy that we interviewed? Um, oh, yeah. Gary, Gary Higgins. Gary Higgins. Higgins. Yeah. yeah. Did, did you find any sort of uh, connection with Gary Higgins? Because he, sp- he seems to speak similarly to you in relation to this sort of thing. Uh, yeah, look, absolutely. Uh, the, uh, Gary Higgins gets the fact that the Northern Territory has to have an inclusive economy. Uh, and gets this sort of campaigning style and stuff too. He's got a very different background, you know, uh, he, mm. uh, but he's come to the Territory uh, and, you know, learned how we do business and he's he's really, really liked amongst his constituents in Wadi and all those yes. remote and Indigenous places. Yes. Uh, and, of course, Jerry Wood, who you've also yes. interviewed recently, mm. uh, you know, he's, a, he's another example. Uh the unfortunately, those sorts of people just don't get the cut through in that sort of cultural, um, uh, polit- the politics of uh, self-interest that rules Darwin. Mm. Uh, but they are there is some good people in our parliament, absolutely. Okay. But let's celebrate your win for a minute. I mean, you, you went up against Best Price. Okay, she was a minister. Um, you were a complete unknown. Oh well, you may have been more well known in, in, in the electorate than outside the electorate. And in that election, you had the, was it the largest swing, was it, of, of any seat? Yeah, I think it's the biggest, it, I think it's the biggest swing ever, actually. So it's 31%. So you won the seat on a swing of almost 31%, uh, and you got 75% of the two-party vote. That's 
that's a very massive win, Scott. Yeah, look, it was it was a very good it was a very good win, and uh, and you know I um, yeah I think the I think my constituents were voting for me, and I, hopefully I've done a decent job for them over the last four years. Well, I, and I, I didn't realise this, but uh, on the third of February two thousand and eighteen, uh, you announced that you would not contest the next election, saying that you had made a huge error of judgment in thinking that you could influence government policy in remote areas. Yeah, correct. And I knew that on the morning after the election win. Wow. I knew I'd just committed myself to four years of, of wasting my time. So I knew on, I knew on the Sunday morning uh, from a phone call from Michael Gunner, the soon-to-be Chief Minister, I knew on that Sunday morning that we had another term of the Henderson government. It was not a new government. It was the old Henderson government. They were going to employ the same advisors. Uh, the same people would be running the government. And I knew that a person like me was viewed to them as risk and that uh, I would be uh, play no further role in the government. I knew that from the Sunday morning. And I had a discussion with my wife about that uh, in the mall out the front of what is still currently my electorate office uh, knowing that we had just made a really bad mistake. So what was the conversation? What was the content of that conversation? Uh, the content of that conversation was, uh, it became very clearly evident uh, that uh, there was a, uh, an inner circle uh, of people who were going to be employed. Uh, there was going to be, uh, you know, people like Alf Leonardi, who, you know, has been in Parliament House whenever Labor's been in there. There was going to be people like Ryan Neve, uh, who's you know currently the Deputy Chief of Staff to the Chief Minister. Uh, those people had all been around back in the Henderson government uh, and also the Martin government before that, and those people were going to run the government. Uh, it was quite clear that they that they were going to run the government. It was going to be very much. Uh, uh, very contrary to Labor's principle. Labor's got a really well-held principle uh, that I absolutely believe in. It's diversity of discussion, unity in action. That's a Labor. They almost chant it, you know, at, mm. at union functions and things. Diversity of discussion, unity in action. It became very clear just in that short conversation with Michael Garner on that morning that absolutely there was going to be no diversity of discussion and as a result, no diversity in action. What did he say uh, that made, you, made was, you think that? Uh, not required. Um, he made it clear that, uh, that decisions had already been made. Uh, decisions had already been made uh, as to uh, not only, you know, who, who would likely to be minister for what, but also who their chief of staff would be uh, and how the departments would be structured and so on. All of those things had already been decided and uh, there, was, uh, there was no point in me trying to exercise my, uh, you know, recently got power of winning or, or let alone winning by the margin that I won by. In fact, I think probably the biggest problem that I had uh, was the margin I won by. I was dangerous. 
and they decided I was dangerous. Jesus. So, so <laughs> this is such an incredibly interesting uh, conversation, Pete, I've got to tell you. <laughs> yeah. So, so you, think about, you think about this, right? I've won that seat. I've won mm. the seat of Stuart by that, by, you know, uh, uh, that you know, fairly good margin. Mm. And uh, and then uh, the uh, the other person, Labor, finally won a seat in Alice Springs. They won the seat of the of the former Chief Minister, mm. and they've won uh, the seat of Brayling with Dale Wakefield. And Dale Wakefield has won the seat with a handful of votes. Mm. And uh, but she's willing, uh, apparently. To uh, to toe the Darwin centric line, mm. uh, to uh, to be willing to be given a very difficult portfolio in the uh, in children and families, mm. uh, now territory families, and uh, be willing to pull the Darwin centric line, be mm. willing to uh, uh, to you know sign off on on uh, twelve million dollars for the Darwin Race Club in mm. the Chief Minister's electorate. Be willing to do that sort of thing. They wanted those sorts of compliant voices. The last thing that they wanted was someone like me who decided that they would always speak up mm. when I was 16. And uh, so uh, I'd uh, become, you know, uh, I'd immediately become uh, someone with a target on their back. Okay, let me. I just um, want to dwell on this a little bit because I need to. I need to understand this better. So you, I mean. You were you were elected first time. Is your first first crack at politics? Did you have immediate aspirations to become a minister, or were you like happy to sort of learn the ropes and, and get a feel for how, how it all worked? No, no, absolutely. I didn't want uh, to be a minister. Uh, I wanted to be part of a collegial government. Uh, okay. I wanted to be part of that Labor principle: diversity of discussion, yeah. unity in action. Right. Now, the way that I often operate is uh, I am a bit annoying. Uh, the way that I often operate is I like to elevate conversations. I like to get people talking. I like to get people talking freely. Sometimes I do that by, by sometimes I needle people a little bit too much. But, you know, that's how you get people talking freely. Yeah. I like to have conversations that are robust, yeah. that are erstwhile, that are, that are worthwhile. I am not into this rhetoric and crap. I'm not interested in stuff that's designed uh, by, you know, some, uh, some uh, peer group that they've done or something. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in bringing my experience to the table, sharing my experience with the other experience at the table. Uh, and like I've already outlined in a non-political sense, I like to listen to other people's views. Mm. I have a very good memory and I use those views to form uh, my views in the future. I listen to people. I wanted to be in that environment and I was being told in that conversation by the Chief Minister that that environment didn't exist. I wasn't trying to be a minister. Mm. I was having a conversation saying I was available to do anything. I didn't say I didn't want mm. to be a minister, mm. but I wasn't trying to be a minister. I didn't mm. ask to be a minister. I didn't ask to not be a minister. I said that I would uh, demonstrated my political capacity by the, by the win that I'd had. Mm. And I wanted to play whatever part he wanted me to play. He told me what that part was. Nothing. Oh, Camp dog corner. You go, Pete. Can you just explain, Scott? Um, you know, you mentioned the 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 majority or the swing, firstly, and then the you know the large amount of votes that you got 
um, by being voted in. Do, do you think or did you think that that, that entitles you to uh, not an extra voice but, but a loud enough voice because the people within your constituency had spoken up big time for you? Yeah, look, I think it, I think it should have showed the relevance of my voice. And, uh, and my points of difference, mm-hmm. uh, that I cross that divide, that I am a non-Indigenous man that has clearly dropped the confidence of Indigenous people, that made me important. Mm-hmm. I am important. Mm-hmm. I continue to be important. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why the Chief Minister wanted to make sure that I played little to no role. Well, Scott, you know, as, as a complete outsider here, listening to you on face value... To me, that is nothing short of disrespectful. And Pete and I have spoken about mm. the issue of, of respect, you know, recently. I mean, it's just how, how can your voice be ignored given the size of the votes, the size of the swing that you effected? I, I just I don't understand it. Like what, what, what that tells me, Scott, is, it me, is, is, is that the Chief Minister... And I want to ask you whether it is the chief minister or whether it is somebody else decided straight away uh, that hey, uh, the entire seat of of um, Stuart, um, we're not going to pay too much attention to what comes out of there. Uh, you know, and all those people yeah, that you sold, that you sold, all those people that you sold, you were going to go into Northern Territory politics, into Parliament, and you were going to represent them to the best of your ability based on the thing, these the things that you were going to do, based on the Labor Party platform and all the rest of it. And the first day after the election, you're basically told your views are not important and are not going to be heard. Am I right or have I paraphrased? No, that's absolutely correct. But I think it's more than that. It wasn't only the voice of Scott McConnell. It was the voice of my constituents. Yes. My constituents, uh, uh, their voice wasn't going to be heard. Mm, and but... it hasn't been heard. That's why we're doing things like spending uh, $80 million guarding bottle shops with uh, sworn police officers why we don't have adequate police resources in remote communities. That's why we're doing things like spending $12 million on a grandstand at Fanny Bay in the Chief Minister's electorate. We're doing those things because my constituents don't have a voice. The other person that we should really look up to in our parliament that did an extraordinary job has also been deliberately sidelined, and that's Mark Yingyagola. Mark Yingyagola won as an independent uh, a seat against a sitting Labor member and uh, the Chief Minister's machine, Michael Gunner's machine, has tried to destroy this very proud young man ever since. He employed Lynn Walker, the previous uh, Labor MLA, in a job that was clearly dodgy. Uh, he kept a, He kept... Uh, Lynn Walker in that job as long as he possibly could until the heat got too much and then they removed him from that job. How disrespectful was that to Mark Yingyagola? He had just won that seat at an election. 
So that's the sort of thing we're up against. These people don't care about the voice of the wider and the diverse Northern Territory. They care about their symbolism and they care about whatever they want to spin. But the idea that voices from those remote and regional places and Indigenous places of the Territory should be heard and should be heard loudly, that is the last thing they want. Tell the only thing that they want to use the indigeneity of this place, indigeneity of this place, I'm sorry, and they only want to use it to draw more money to the Territory. So t- That's tell all me, they're interested in. Okay, tell me about this. I, I, at one point in time, Alpha Leonardi was voted the most powerful person in the Territory. Uh, would you would you regard as Alf being the person that was really pulling the levers with, with all of this? Oh, look, I, I would, but I hold Michael Gunner entirely responsible. He has the ability to employ whoever he likes as his chief of staff, and he chose Alf. So I don't think it's very fair uh, to you know put the weight on Alf. Uh, I'm no fan of Alf, and he's probably no fan of me. Uh, but the person responsible. Uh, for these poor decisions uh, is the leader, Chief Minister Michael Gunner. And how, is he, how, how has he managed to stay there for as long as he has, given all these sort of negative things that have gone on, you know, including, I mean, people like me, for example, and I'm sure Pete's in the same boat, you know. I mean, I know Alf, you know, I get along with Alf pretty well. Um, I don't necessarily agree with everything he does, and uh, I'm sure that he doesn't agree with, with some of my views. But, you know, we... In, in, the, in the private sector get quite irate when we see people like Alf Leonardi. And it wasn't just under Michael Gunner, but it was also under Paul Henderson uh, that get turfed as chief of staff and then they end up in this plum job in education. Twice. That's how they, you, you know, that's how, how does they that roll. work? I mean, it's just not, it, to me, it's not fair. That, that's not the way things should work. No, it's not. And, and it's a real problem. And, uh, and that closed shop that operates in Darwin, uh, that very close allegiance there is between elected politicians and people that work for politicians, people that come in and out of the public service, and also a small group of, of business people and even a small group of media, they run Darwin as it's a coterie. Uh, it's a, a little, uh, it's a fiefdom. Uh, it's a little kingdom. And, uh, and what they trade in is the relationships with one another. So, you know, like I wonder how team territory, let's talk about team territory. I, I know there's a team territory uh, in the commercial sector. You know, everybody that's in the Chamber of Commerce and are doing the best for the territory. Uh, there's a team territory in the land councils from the Indigenous perspective. There's a team territory in the social services group, you know, that are doing the best for social services. But the team territory, team territory, big one, that resides in that parliament house. There's 25 people with MLA after their name. That's team territory. Not here. Team territory is a former chief minister who's got commercial interests with best spoke. I'm, of course, talking to Paul Henderson. And another former chief minister, Claire Martin, who has a lot of other interests as well and is already, I think she's the chairperson of, uh, of museums and art galleries, Northern Territory Museum and Art Galleries. Uh, of course, uh, Paul Henderson is currently uh, the... Um, Chancellor? 
chancellor of uh, of the university. Mm. Now, these people are people I respect. They are people that led the territory. They are people that won their seats. They are respected people in our community. They are not team territory. They resigned from politics. They resigned from parliament. They have commercial interests or private interests in in things like you know museums and universities that that interest them. They are not team territory. Team territory are people that are elected. Team territory was Beth Price when she was the member. Team territory is Carl Hampton when he was the member. Team territory is Scott McConnell when he was the member for Stewart and still is the member for Stewart. That's team territory, especially when you're actually on the government benches as well. That's what we need to do. We don't need to lead the territory with people that previously led the territory. We don't need to get retired public servants back in to help lead us. We don't need what Terry Mills wants to do, which seems to call every second person coordinator general or or something or other general. (laughs) We need to have the elected people in that parliament to have the experience and the knowledge to lead the executive arm of government if they should be the leader or in the cabinet. We need those people to do their jobs. Michael Gunner, the way you have a competent team territory that's elected to parliament is you give everyone the voice. You follow Labor's principles, you give them the voice, you have the diversity of discussion and then the unity in action and then the territory goes forward. If you try to control the territory with a former leader's chief of staff, with a former advisor that's now working in New South Wales or Victoria or somewhere else that's going to give you advice over the top of your own constituent and others that were elected to your parliament, you will lead the territory into $6.95 billion worth of debt before COVID. That's what you will do. He's proven to us that that's what he's done. So I want to know where, where is the work from this team territory? What have they done? Claire Martin, have you bought a single business to Darwin since you've been in your team territory role? Uh, Paul Henderson. Have you done diddly squat? What have you actually done? I respect you as a former police uh, uh, chief minister, but I don't think that you've got a role to play anymore. I think that we need to listen to the new generation of leaders. I think that those new generation of leaders should have very good relationships with older leaders. Of course they should. But we need to be taking the territory forward. The territory is a very different place than it was when that gentleman was our chief minister. These people are holding us back. That closed shop in Darwin, that wire business is done in Darwin, uh, and there's the relationships within the CLP as well, it's, it's, uh, it's not good. We've got a problem. Democracy has a problem in the Northern Territory. Scott, I saw this question asked of Donald Trump a few days ago, and I thought it was a brilliant question. He was asked... How would he rate his presidency on a scale of zero to ten? I won't tell you what he said. <laughs> but how would you how would you rate the Gunner government's uh, performance on a scale of zero to ten, and specifically the chief minister himself? I think I'd turn the volume up to eleven. He's all bullshit. There's no substance. So. Um, Look, there's some things that have been done uh, that are not wrong. Uh, it's really hard to do everything wrong. 
Can you give us some but examples of that, well, where's the, where's the vision for, for, for the territory? So uh, it, it's the issues that we've got. The issues that we've got are, uh, and I don't have the figures right in front of me, but I can tell you this sort of anecdotally, and it's, it's supported by evidence. So um, the highest mean household incomes in Australia, uh, the top three uh, capital cities, uh, we're going to know two of them, aren't we? Aren't they? Mm. We're going to know that two of them are Sydney and Canberra. What's the third one? Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth? No, Darwin. Which is first out of those three? Darwin. Really? Really. The highest mean household incomes in a capital city in Australia is Darwin. Crikey's. Wow. Right? So it's higher than Sydney. And you guys know the cost of living in Sydney. You guys know the cost mm. of living in Canberra. So the cost of living is high in Darwin, I acknowledge. But the highest household income is in Darwin. Now, we've got, you know, uh, we're talking about the need for tradies bonuses schemes and the need to gift $12 million to the race club. So, you know, people have got somewhere to go out and put their frock on because they're hard done by. And we've got all of these problems, you know, we've, we, we have to make extensions to the free wave pool and we have to make extensions to the free water park and people are all doing it so hard in Darwin and Palmerston. Well, come to the electorate of Stewart. I don't have a mean household income because that data is not collected. But before all the COVID stuff, the individual, the household, the income per individual in my electorate of people that work was $14,000. It's less than the doll. So we go from Darwin and Palmerston and Alice Springs to some degree, having amongst the highest incomes on average in Australia, to my electorate, where they're amongst the lowest. So the numbers uh, around then were the uh, average income uh, in the electorate of Stewart was about $14,200 and the doll was 14600 So the average income in my electorate, and you know how big it is, is less than the dole before COVID. Mm. Isn't that extraordinary? Do we ever hear the Chief Minister talking about that? The thing that's powering the problems in the Territory, we have problems in the ter Territory with law and order and crime. And you know what's driving them? Social inequality. Mm. No school attendance, poor school attendance, poor two housing. Of, two of our previous uh, guests on the podcast, Bob Beadman. And um, and Jerry Wood have laid the blame uh, for the um, decline in Indigenous um, engagement fairly and squarely and ironically at mm. the feet of Gough Whitlam on the basis that when Whitlam came to power, he doled out all the benefits and uh, put them on, as, as I think uh, 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 Jerry said yesterday, uh, made them uh, you know, a mendicant um, people. Yeah, look, I, I think I agree with them and, and I hear their view. I think that's an oversimplification, though. I think that uh, a lot of the progressions that we've made from the policies of the Whitlam government are really important to the future progress we need to make. 
so I think they're actually the grounding. I think we just got the balance wrong. Uh, I mean, I often think about this. There's a very famous photo of, uh, of uh, the Gurindji led by Vincent Lingiari. Uh, there's a photograph of them all lined up when they've won, you know, about equal wages and they've won, you know, the pathway to land rights. There's all these very well-dressed stockmen, Aboriginal stockmen, Gurindji people, all wearing, you know, the right boots, the right hats, the right trousers, you know that they're accomplished stockmen. They're standing around a sign showing, you know, that they've won uh, their, their battle and they've got equal wages and they've got access to ancestral land and they're on a winner. And I absolutely agree that that is a photograph of winners. But did they know that they were never going to work again and that their children and now grandchildren and even great-grandchildren have become dependent on welfare? Did they know that? We, we got it wrong. And what we need to recognise is that, no, Aboriginal people don't deserve to be paid less. They deserve to be paid the same. And, yes, Aboriginal people have strong connections to the land, a lot of which they continue to own and should continue to own. But that doesn't mean that Aboriginal people shouldn't have the education to be able to engage in the workforce to be able to make decisions like all three of us are. We're making decisions today. We're making decisions about our lives based on our education and our experience and our opportunity. Why shouldn't remote Aboriginal people have those opportunities? So I reckon that Whitlam didn't get it wrong, but he only got it half right. It's up to us to do the rest. And we're not doing it. We're not doing it. Right. So I've got two questions for you uh, to, to wrap this up. The first question is, uh, what would you do if you were Chief Minister? And the second question is, are you running in the next election as an independent? Uh, yes. So the, fir- the first question, uh, what we need to do is we need to start a new conversation with the Territory. The future of the Northern Territory depends on Indigenous landed labour participating in the economy. We need to get people that live in Darwin and Palmerston, and I, I respect Darwin, it's our capital city. We need to get people that live in Darwin and Palmerston to understand that the Territory Government must govern for all Territorians at all times. What's happening in Kintore, in the remote reaches of my election, is important to the people that live in Palmerston. We need to understand we're all in this together. Just like in the COVID world, and we're telling everyone we're all in this together and we need it for the long haul, let's start that conversation. We need to have less of this us and them. It's one shared future. I've got a a political cartoon on my desk. It's about Donald Trump. It's about Donald Trump building a wall. But the wall isn't along the Mexican border. The wall is up the middle of America. And we're doing that in the Northern Territory. Our Chief Minister, like previous Chief Ministers, continues to divide the Territory based on geography and race. Stop doing it. We've got one shared future. If we want our property prices to go up, we need to deal with the fact that we've got an economy that doesn't work for everyone that work, that lives here. We've got to work on these issues. We've got to work on the school attendance issues so we've got available and ready workforce for emerging industries in the future. Chief Minister, stop worrying about self-interest. Stop worrying about which one of your friends or family gets a job. 
stop worrying about the fact that they're, they're doing it hard at the race club in Fanny Bay and start thinking about what's happening across the Territory. We need to protect the fact that we've got First Nations people living in every corner of our Territory that still live on their land, practice their law, language and culture. We need to be proud of it. But we need to give those people the skills to be able to participate in a participatory economy, not a mendicant one. And are you running again? Yes, I am. I'm uh, taking a leaf out of the book of, uh, of Roger Vale and I'm running for the seat of Breitling. I'm not uh, going back on what I said. I absolutely will not run for the seat of Stuart. I ran for the seat of Stuart now, Gwaja, as a Labor member, and I found out on the morning of the election that I made a great mistake. I've already uh, laid that bare. I made a great mistake, and I still feel a little upset about that great mistake that I made even today. But post that time, while I've been in Parliament, I've learned a lot of skills. Uh, I've made a lot of contacts and I've been asked by many people to consider running for politics again. So I've listened to those people, I learn from people that speak to me and I've decided to do something a little bit challenging because I love a challenge and I'm running as an independent in the seat of Breitling. Wow. Uh, the reason I want to run for Breitling is because uh, I think that I should be running in the seat of Breitling to prove that that voice that was given me by remote Indigenous people will likely be given to me by the seat of Breitling and then I will take it to Darwin again and I will show these people who are invested in self-interest again that they are wrong and that they need to speak more, speak more broadly. So you're going to run against Dale Wakefield? Certainly am. <laughs> All right, Pete, I've taken the floor. You'll go, mate. Look, I don't want to ask a question. I just want to make a statement. Please do. Scott, I bloody love your passion, mate. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, we have a lot of politicians come and talk to us and I generally feel as though they're quite guarded about the responses they give us. They give us what perhaps we want to hear, perhaps sometimes a bit of extra slips out that they weren't planning to give us but they give us anyway. But I don't feel and I didn't feel for one second that you gave us anything other than what you absolutely passionately believe in. Um, I've only lived in Darwin, so don't hate me for that. But I can see and I really do understand that there is so much more to the Northern Territory than that. And I love yeah. the fact that you got such a massive majority in your seat. And to me, that, that gives you voice. And I'm actually pretty, to be pretty honest with you, I'm pretty pissed off with the way this current government's behaved. I know Leon doesn't like me saying that because he thinks that's why they don't talk to us, but they don't talk to anyone. And mm. I've seen a lot of things they've done yeah. and it's unconscionable in many respects. So, mate, you know, all I can say is good luck to you because you represent, in my opinion, and it's only my opinion, but what people in the Territory need championing for them. Uh, look, I, I, I want to I want to echo Pete's sentiments. I think they were absolutely on point, Scott. Uh, you know, you mentioned earlier that you're a progressive, but a social conservative, and you know, and, and all that. I find myself floundering in terms of where my politics are, and I have for a long time. Uh, you know, I thought I was conservative, 
But, uh, you know, when I test myself on those ABC little, you know, vote how you, where you stand, <laughs> I find myself completely and utterly in, in green territory and in a jungle of green. So it, clearly politics is far more complex than just left and right. There's no question yeah. about it in my mind, you know. Yeah. But, but like Pete, you know, I, I've already ever lived in Darwin myself. Um, but what you say does resonate with me. You know, it, it really does. Mm. And I'm just so gratified that there are people like you in politics. I mean, I'm so sad that people like Jerry Wood are, 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 resigned, are mm. obviously retiring. And for, for good reason. I mean, he's 70, for goodness sake. He's been in politics for 20 years. But I hope there are more people like you that stand up uh, and run as independents because I think the party system is broken. It is just so incredibly difficult to vote for a party anymore because yeah. they just don't represent, you know, everything that we believe in. Yeah, absolutely. So um, on that note, we'll let you go. But, Scott, I think we're probably going to have to get you back on the podcast at some point in time uh, to give us some running commentary on what's happening in there because um, <laughs> with Jerry gone, uh, you're one of the few independents. And, you know, we'll scratch this, you know, uh, some other independents to see where they stand. Um, but it's just been an absolute pleasure and very lovely to get in, getting to know you, um, Scott. No worries. Look, thank you both for, for the opportunity. And uh, uh, we live in a great place in Northern Territory, but we've got a lot of work to, uh, to keep it great. That was Scott McConnell, the current member for the seat of Stewart, running now as an independent for the seat of Breitling at the upcoming election on the Territory Story podcast. We'll catch you again next time. You've been listening to the Territory Story podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story Podcast on all leading podcasting platforms. The Territory Story Podcast, thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.